But when you move outside academia, you see so many truly brilliant people without PhDs, people who founded charities, people who set up amazing companies or organizations. And you realize it's, you know, it's just not a requirement for being interesting or intelligent, honestly. Welcome to episode four of the second season of Starts at the Top, our podcast about leadership, digital culture and change. I'm Paul Thomas. And I'm Zoe Amma. Our podcast aims to bring you interviews with leaders from the public, private and third sectors who are using digital to navigate uncertainty and forge a path to the future. We have a three course meal of an interview for you today with Professor Carl Gombrich of the London Interdisciplinary School. And it really complements last week's interview with Liz Williams of Future.Now on the digital skills gap and what can be done to help to close it. We're really excited about this week's interview with Carl, and I wanted to start with some personal reflections on why I'm so fascinated by his work. And also just to let you know that Zoe and I have been practicing interdisciplinary. It's one of those words that you just trip over far too easily. So last year, I left a long-term corporate role where I'd worked as sort of a cross-functional problem solver focused on digital transformation. It was a role that encompassed comms, marketing, IT, HR, and working closely with leadership teams. And it was consistently hard to define where it sat within a typical corporate structure. In 2019, and I was at the Social Now conference in Lisbon, and I saw a talk by Kenneth Mickelson about his book, The Neo-Generalist, which focuses on specialism versus generalism. And it was a real eye-opener. Many of the traits that Kenneth was talking about sounded like the role I'd been performing, problem-solving from a broad base, working with specialist teams to tackle complex problems. So I posted about it on social media, and Carl, who is a friend and ex-colleague of my wife's at UCL, popped up and recommended that I read Range by David Epstein, which is an excellent book and further explores generalism and its role in the 21st century. Carl also said that he was setting up a new university to tackle this challenge head on, the London Interdisciplinary School, or LIS, which is much easier to say. I went along to the launch and asked Carl onto our podcast. So this is a rangy conversation about the challenge that LIS is working to solve, about the drastic change needed within the education system to build students who are equipped to tackle the world's multifaceted problems. We spoke to Carl about how we can prepare the young people of today for the tech disruption of tomorrow and how schools and universities will need to transform as institutions to meet this challenge. So a bit about Carl's background. He has a master's in theoretical and mathematical physics, as well as a master's degree in philosophy from the University of London. He joined University College London, UCL, in 2002 as a lecturer, and later in 2010, he was appointed programme director of UCL Arts and Sciences programme. He was a member of the British Academy Working Group on Interdisciplinarity, which published a report in 2016 called Crossing Paths, Interdisciplinary Institutions, Careers, Education and Applications. In 2019, Carl was appointed academic lead and head of teaching and learning as part of the team building the London Interdisciplinary School. The university aims to provide students with an interdisciplinary practical education and the first undergraduate intake will be in September of 2021. We started by asking Carl about his own educational journey and why he insists that he's not a true academic. True academics these days have PhDs, number one. Uh, as a kind of necessary condition for being academic. I don't have a PhD. Um, we could explore that in more detail if you like, but I think basically the reason was I never wanted to settle on one narrow area for three plus years. And that's uh, very interesting in the context of what we'll talk about today, I think, kind of being someone who continually likes to move on, connect to something else and so on. That's almost impossible if you're doing a PhD. Interestingly, it wasn't that unusual in the kind of middle to 
second half of the middle part of the last century. So there were greater academics than, or thinkers really than me, Isaiah Berlin, Alan Wilson, who's still going tremendously strong, who never got PhDs. They did fantastic research, but they didn't get that kind of badge. I've got to be careful a little bit how I say this because I don't have one. So, it's, you know, I don't want to blow the other side of the trumpet too hard. But I think there are downsides to insisting people have a PhD. Isaiah Berlin said he never got one because he didn't want to have to prove his orthodoxy. And there is an element of proving that you can do things a certain way by getting a PhD, which perhaps isn't always the best idea to have everybody like that in an institution. But anyway, that's one thing that's really, really different. And the other thing, I really do have to be genuinely modest about this, is that I don't do research in the normal way. I do a lot of action stuff, entrepreneurial stuff. I set things up, I commission work, I curate work, I put teams together. But I've never particularly been drawn to the sort of research that is generally goes on in academia today. And here, you know, I, unlike the PhD, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a champion of research. You have to be doing good research in the world of knowledge for the world of knowledge to progress. And so it's certainly a fantastic research without a PhD. And it's great that people are doing fantastic research with and without PhDs. It's just that that's not been my thing. I'm really, really interested in ideas. I'm really interested in, in people and in education, providing the best scenarios for what I think are very interesting educational opportunities. But I've never been drawn to research in, in what is now regarded as a typical academic's job. So I guess those are two ways for which I'm, I'm not a typical academic. Well, I think you're in good company because I haven't got a PhD and I don't think Zoe has either. So that's that's good. That's correct. I haven't <laughs> yeah. got one. So you, you've come to the right place today, Carl. But when you move outside academia, you see so many truly, truly brilliant people without PhDs, people who founded charities and led charities, people who set up amazing companies or organisations. And you realise it's, you know, it's just not a requirement for being an interesting or you know, even particularly intelligent, honestly, person. I mean, the, the range of PhDs is just immense. You have some people who do truly groundbreaking work in their PhDs that lasts forever. And then the norm is kind of good stuff, which adds a little bit to the overall picture, but not, not that much. And then there's quite a lot of stuff, which really is just people sort of treading water. And you think, well, in a way, you think, what was the point of that PhD? Again, it was a kind of disciplining process. It helped people perhaps learn about modern conceptions of what research should look like, what peer review should look like, and so on. But there's a lot of problems with that because science has this replication crisis that a lot of stuff been published can't be repeated because it was somehow slightly dishonest when it was actually originally done. So there's kind of statistical hacking, there's kind of cherry picking, the fact that most journals only publish positive results, so you get a skew towards things which look exciting, but actually may not be true. The sample was too small or there's something wrong in the data analysis. So insisting on that kind of research is not always beneficial either. Uh, there's a, a very wide range of quality in, in research outputs. And even peer review has been strongly criticized now by many leading academics. There's a kind of gatekeeping aspect to it. Basically, you have to write in the area and in a similar way to the people running the journals. Again, this isn't uniformly true, but there's an element of truth in this, too much truth in this. So there is a, definitely a crisis in academia and a crisis in the feeling that there's only one way to be an academic. So I guess if I'm an example of another way to be a different sort of academic, uh, Paul, rather than not be an academic at all, then, then that's a good thing. Yeah, and I wonder, does that trickle down? Because, you know, organisations, I, I worked for a big accountancy firm, and we weren't the first, but we were among the first to um, to say that we weren't going to take in university results into account. We would go after school leavers as well. So we would recruit a huge number of school leavers who didn't have the academic qualifications that would normally be necessary to access a, a career like accountancy into the profession to level the playing field. So does that sort of trickle down, I guess, is the point I'm making. Yeah, I mean, what was your experience of that? Did that work out? 
Yeah, I mean, phenomenal. In in some regards, you know, we didn't really see it in the teams that I was necessarily working with immediately. But the, the apprentices and the people that we brought on board were hungry and academically sound, actually. You know, they, they, they weren't held back by that at all. They were intelligent, they were hungry, and they were ready to, to work and work really hard. And, you know, we, we mentioned just before about the sort of people that hide at their desks from nine till five. They certainly weren't those people. They were the, the get up and go people. And I think that was the, the sort of the main experience of that. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, there just is this thing, street smart and, and book smart. But I'm actually, and maybe we'll get to this a bit more later on, I'm keen to make connections between those two, because often in life, I think you also go between those. I know, I think you, you watched my podcast with Dave Erasmus, and Dave was someone who certainly thought of himself as, you know, street smart when he left school and not book smart. But clearly, you know, there's an amazing intellect there, right? And some people just go through that period of not wanting to explore that part of themselves. But I do believe that every human being has a life of the mind. And therefore, if you show an interest in the life of that mind and help them to connect with it in a way that they find enriching and and helps them grow in a way they want to grow, you're doing a good thing. And I feel that university, in a way, should be, particularly in this age when all knowledge is accessible if you want to, to go and get it, should be doing much more of that. So, so connecting with people who, like you're saying, kind of hungry, street smart people want to get on with, with work, that's fantastic. But I also believe that those people, at some point in their life, maybe not immediately at that point, but maybe fairly soon or maybe a few years later, will start to think, you know, what's the origin of accountancy? You know, what, what's going on in the double entry bookkeeping? You know, why, why do I care? And then, of course, the whole wider economic issues of it and business issues and ethical issues and all that comes into play. And immediately you've got anything like that. You're, you're talking about higher education, basically. So I'm, I'm keen to make these connections for both ways, really. People like that, I think universities should be reaching out to and, and helping to develop. And also, probably more so, the other way is that in universities, we need to be looking much more out what happens to most people after universities. Uh, and this is, again, where the PhD sort of discussion comes back a bit, because so much university is still thinking as if every undergraduate is going to become an academic. My friend and colleague, Vin Walsh, the professor of neuroscience at UCL, always used to say this to me. He was a fantastic support and mentor to me early on when I was setting up the degree at UCL. You know, we've got to stop thinking about educating mini-me's, you know, people who are just like us, basically, because they're not going to be us. And he was really tough. He used to take even his master's students who'd come back to do neuroscience and saying, you know, 20 of you in the room, 19 of you aren't going to be academics. It was like his first talk. And they were like, jaw hit the floor, you know. Universities should be doing much more of that. The real problems which external organizations are working with. So, so it could be productivity. That sounds rather dramatic, but it's not. It's, it's about people, right? It's fascinating. It's about, about economics. It's about metrics, what that even means, productivity. And then we think, what are the kind of almost classical, but certainly intellectual tools that you, you use to start to think about that? Is it, is it psychology? Is it economics? Uh, and we want to take those kind of real problems from the real world that people outside universities are wrestling with, you know, climate change, obesity, knife crime, technology and AI, and then think what are the kind of academic backgrounds or trainings, which can take weeks or could take months to get enough of a, a start in, but they, they're there. What are, they, what are those tools that the students should start to learn in order to think about these, these real world problems? And that's how you get, I think, a, a genuine connection between what most people are doing in the world, which is not doing PhDs and very micro research, a genuine connection between these real problems and stuff that really lights my fire, which is uh, big ideas. 
ideas that have changed history, science that's changed the way we view and manipulate the world. So I just don't see this big gap between these two things. I think there's an opportunity to, to make better connections, and I think we should be doing it. I think universities should be doing it, and I hope and believe that external organizations will also help universities to learn about their problems in a way and, and listen to universities when they have ideas about those problems. As you were talking there, Carl, I think there's there's two issues which you've you've brilliantly highlighted where there's, I, I think, of a, a bit of a debate going on in the charity sector and society. And the first, particularly talking about opening up access to academia and, and those different paths to success, feels to me like it's, it's very much about the, the current conversation about diversity as well and how we can create opportunities for people and, and say, well, you don't necessarily have to have this qualification to do it. And then secondly, from what you were saying there, I was also wondering in terms of disruption and all the big digital changes that are coming with the pandemic, whether there's now a bit more urgency around the perhaps traditional speed of academic life. I don't mean that in a in a negative way at all. I just wonder perhaps whether there's something there about given that there's more urgency for change and innovation across all different areas of society. Do you see that also changing in academia can we wait several years for someone to do a phd to find a magic (laughs) answer to something which may now be a real burning question wonderful questions though very rich actually that question because there's so many dimensions one thing curious about academia is it claims to be the radical change maker in society and in many ways has a it's a just claim right when you look at the big ideas whether it's around you know genetics AI, and even in, in the humanities in some way, ideas in, in politics or economics that change the world, they do, at least in 100 years or so, seem to have come out of academia. On the other hand, they're the most conservative institutions I've ever met. I mean, even your accountancy firm you were telling me about previously, has nothing on academia when it comes to sluggishness and slowness to embrace many new ways of, of working and even thinking. The, the power of the business world, I think, is it just cannot afford to be like that. It's the power and the risk, right? So it's both subject to whims and fads, but it's also incredibly urgent, as, you, as I think you were saying, Zoe, that it does change, otherwise it doesn't survive in many cases. So there is a really interesting tension there. I mean, just one thing I'm living at the moment, setting up a new university, is the kind of academic cycle being necessarily one year long. So if you want to implement something, say I want to implement something now, I can't affect it until September 2021, even if I have a great idea now. If I was in the I was now starting term, this term, in fact, this academic year is now done and dusted. There's nothing I can do to change this academic year. And that rolls through a whole kind of system of tradition, bureaucracy. Increasingly, the marketing authorities are involved in this because if we've told a student, and this can go even back, right? If I've told a student in 2019 what I was doing in 2020, then I can't change that when I start in 2020. And so the only chance to change that is for 2021. So you've almost got like a two-year lockdown on anything you said you're going to do before you can change it. So there's huge um, impediments to being agile and changing on the spot. And I do have a massive problem with that. And now, as you're saying, Zoe, we're in this period where everyone's wanting to be agile, feeling the, the need for it. And in some ways, so in some ways, this is good because in some ways, this has just forced universities to do lots of things they would never have done otherwise. And students on the whole are 
understanding about that and say, yeah, we get why you've got to do this now. And some universities are doing it better than others, obviously, but on the whole, students are sympathetic and saying, you know, well done for trying this. All the, all they're pushing back and saying, you've got to do better. And that's important too. Whether the urgency now and the move towards more and better digital will change anything in the longer run about universities' agility, I think it is a very open question because while you've got these very traditional long cycles and increasing regulatory quality control, which is real legacy stuff, right? I mean, it goes back to the 20th century, hasn't changed much about a concept of what quality control is and how it has to look and, and how bureaucratic it is. While you've got all that in place, I'm not sure that this urgency around digital will really crack that, to be honest. It's like a surface layer of urgency rather than the fundamental change about what a university is and and how it offers its courses, its teaching, its learning, and so on. Um, On the diversity point, I think that's really interesting because, you know, in a way, what we're talking about when Paul talks about his non-typical learners coming to Grant Thornton and doing really well, a university might say and might have a right to say, well, that's fine, but, you know, we do things like mark really good quality writing and essays or particular ways of thinking. And if we wanted to be so diverse as to bring in street smart people into universities, then you do have to look very differently at what a curriculum is, a syllabus is, what assessments are. And I'm open to that, um, particularly if we can sort of show what's called a, like a learning gain or a value add. So you might take a person who's really street smart but terrible at writing and take them to some place which is still probably not good enough to get them to uni, but much better than they were before. But I can see that some academics would just say, look, this isn't my business. I can't work with someone who really can't read and write at A-level standard or in a kind of higher level standard. So it's a really challenging point about diversity. And that's not to address the kind of racial and gender diversity either, which also impacts on the curriculum, some people say. It's a great challenge. But I don't think we're there yet in thinking about what diversity really means in a university in terms of diversity of skills and abilities and how we might want to adapt our curriculum accordingly. Going back to the, the first point about entrenched behaviour, and you know, you used to describe big organisations, accountancy firms, law firms as you know oil tankers trying to change direction, and it's it's next to impossible because That's the way because, I too, yeah. But it's just entrenched behaviour, and I think you're absolutely right. You know, the very very surface level of the connection to digital and what we've been talking about for for most of this year is you know there was a meme out that said digital transformation has happened overnight, and it's nothing to do with your your CEO or your CTO. It's it's down to COVID nineteen. Um, but what we mean by digital transformation in that sense is people have suddenly found the ability to connect over Zoom or Skype or whatever it might be. And, 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 it's, and it's that very surface level stuff. But what hasn't changed is we've just remapped the old world to the new one. So we've basically said, well, in, if I was in London in an office, I'd be in meetings from, uh, from nine o'clock in the morning till four o'clock in the afternoon. I will just replicate that. So we sit behind our screens talking to people for for hours and hours and on end. But actually, the the fundamental change that needs to happen is we need to look beyond the idea of you know do we need that meeting? Do we need that conversation? Or what do we need to do? We need to just engage in some deep work, which means that we need to turn off all of that stuff and move away from it. There's no sort of consideration in 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 many instances to you know, how the behavioural changes. Um, that have become entrenched in all of our organisations need to change. That's really interesting to hear you digital guys talking about switching off because I guess you're such at the cutting edge that you you have an excess of this. And I do think it's very strange that we still have a notion of e-learning as something separate to learning. And 
for many of our students, what they do as value in, in their work lives, basically the sort of economic value, will all be on the internet. It will never have to be downloaded to the real world to paper, soil or wood. It, it's a knowledge digital economy job. So why should we teach something which has to be downloaded to real life, whether it's being in a classroom, whether it's writing pencil and paper exams, going through pencil and paper problem sheets and tutorials. Why should we teach in that way if it's only just going to have to be uploaded again later on? That really seems weird to me. But then that kind of raises the whole issue of then, are we saying that all learning is entirely online? I think we have to resist that somewhat. Interestingly, the younger members of my team resist it more than me. They say, no, you have to still have this kind of real socializing part of education that students will come to a real place, meet people, play sport together, dance together. I'm deliberately picking things which can't be done online. And so if that's true, then the question for me as someone setting up a new university is how do we sell that, to be honest? How do we tell students that nine grand they're investing for learning isn't just about the formal learning and the qualification? And this is where the whole economics of universities gets really fascinating and really nuts. I mean, you can't sell a university really as an experience the way you can sell skydiving as an experience. Students still say and believe they want to come to university and that nine grand is basically an investment in a qualification. It's a paper ticket to, more, to a better life, more money, and all that flows from that. And yet the reality is for many students, and they've known this kind of for years, but it still hasn't filtered through to sort of consciousness and the way we talk about university in our society as a rite of passage and all this physical stuff. So when they get to university, they get a different experience or rather the learning is kind of there, but it's not perhaps as important as they thought, but the other stuff becomes massively important and they're generally satisfied. Despite some naysayers and government pushback against certain kind of liberal traits in universities, the data on student satisfaction is pretty amazing for a massive social project. You don't get, you know, 70 to 80% satisfaction on politicians or newspapers or even, you know, the, the football, national football team. People like universities and the proof is they keep going to them. There's plenty of opportunity not to go to university now, whether it's the sort of schemes you were mentioning before. So where are we with this? We're at a point where is that dichotomy going to become acute? Do we have to be really honest with students and say, look, of course we teach you online because your whole working life is going to be online. But equally, of course, you need to come to us in person to learn what it's like to work with real people in real spaces and do stuff together. And if we're that honest, will they actually come? Or will they say, you know what, I don't believe you about the real world stuff. I can go clubbing with my mates the weekend anyway. And the online stuff I can do online. So why would I pay you nine grand? And I, I genuinely don't know where we are with that. I'm, I'm amazed how conservative students have been as well in their choices the last 10 years. You've got to say, they've been amazingly conservative. One of the things that I was going to ask you is, is what is the demand that you're hearing from students? Are they being conservative? Are they making traditional choices? Yeah, what's the demand been for LIS, I guess? So demand for liberal arts courses, which are very related to interdisciplinarity, it's a bit more like the US system where you have much more choice coming in and then you specialise a bit more in your second and third years. Those has gone up a lot in this country over the last 10 years from kind of five or six in thousands, sorry, to about 30 odd now. And there's very good data from organisations that work with six forms across the whole country that search on liberal arts has, has really ballooned. So that's clear indicator that students want more choice and variety and they're wondering why they'd sign up for, for just three years of a course. But I mean, it's still tiny, it's tiny, tiny niche. I think maybe we're talking like, I don't know, 10,000 applications 
nationwide per year. If that, that that's a generous estimate. It was more like 4,000 two or three years ago. And, you know, really radically interdisciplinary courses like the one at UCL. Again, that's grown a lot, been there now for a year and a half, but I imagine they get probably just that course, a thousand plus applications for 130 places a year. But it's still tiny compared to single subject economics, maths, law, medicine, you know, even English literature, which uh, wonderful degree and wonderful to spend one's life immersed in that culture and reading great stuff. Very odd from my point of view that that's still regarded as kind of a, I don't know, I'm going to antagonize great scholars of literature now, but... <laughs> You can do a literature degree and never open a spreadsheet, never think about digital, other than that it's your Facebook. And I find that really odd that education in universities hasn't integrated more about connectivity and the necessary digitalness of the modern world in, in everything they do. Which is why people come into organisations like the ones we've worked for in the past with none of those skills, perhaps. Totally, yeah. Or a sort of a, a lack of skills that you find very surprising. It always used to make me laugh, you know, and it's, if I see it on a CV now, I, I do laugh a lot. Everyone used to put on their CV, competent in Word, Excel and PowerPoint. <laughs> but now people just aren't. And they don't put it on their CVs, not because it's a given, it's that they actually, in some cases, aren't competent with using some of those things. And I, you know, I'm using those three as a, a base example, but just people's inability to see beyond the Zoom example again, that suddenly people have had their eyes open to cloud sharing of, of documents and having conversations with each other and taking notes and sharing those notes while they do it. But two years ago, we were battling hard within organisations to try and change people towards that behaviour. Yes, as someone of the older generation who's not as agile as I'd like to be on that, my Excel skills are fairly rudimentary and uh, <laughs> I get caught in the terrible, you know, oh my goodness, we're on drive dropbox and onedrive and you know where are the documents and all that and so on but i i i think the younger generation has no excuse that we're not helping them be completely fluent in this now can i ask on that very note in fact do you think this is the next place that digital disruption is is going to happen then so you talk there about digital disruption in universities and the reason why i particularly wanted to pick up on this perhaps wider point about digital disruption in education generally is last night i was on a zoom call in fact with my kids school so my younger child who's seven has just gone across to the junior school where her brother is and for socially distanced reasons the head teacher needed to do a assembly with 90 parents on Zoom. We spent the first 10 minutes of that call uh, with one of the teachers struggling with uh, sharing their screen, sharing some slides on Zoom. And then the, the head teacher slightly worrying about the fact that his older child was, was also in the bath at the same time while he was hosting this Zoom assembly. <laughs> and my husband and I, who spend most of our day on, on Zoom calls throughout our various lines of work, were saying to each other, if we had done that in our jobs, we would probably probably be, be out of a job and, and we were also saying our kids are going to be working in AI they're going to be working in robotics there are going to be some amazing things happening in tech by that point and yet the, the people who are guiding their young minds at the moment are struggling with some quite basic digital skills and this is a school which is rated outstanding by offset it's, it's a state school mm. but in, in other ways it's seen as a real you know very desirable place for kids to learn 
So I think with with things like, for example, the the, the lack of uh, remote provision for teaching for kids in, in schools and some of those challenges that you describe in academia, where there are phenomenal, incredibly talented, bright people, but yet these various institutions are yet to keep pace with some of the wider digital changes in society. Do you feel that that's coming, that those big changes and, and that growth in digital skills is going to happen in education and, and academia? I think it just has to. You know, the pressure is just going to be too immense. And when people catch up with what they actually are doing and how they actually live their lives, it's very strange. Nassim Taleb talks about this a lot, the difference between what people say and what they actually do. And we're all mediated by screens almost all the time now. Partially what you were just saying, Paul, about now perhaps getting off screens. We're not there yet. We're all spending, what is it, an average of seven hours a day mediated by a screen. And to sort of think that somehow it's not real or it's unsatisfactory or real life is elsewhere, it's just a mistake. So we have to look what we're actually doing and then think how we do education around that. And even when I, at UCL actually, um, just the time I left, there was pressure, big pressure from students in some very venerable humanities departments, which had basically none of this going on, to offer separate courses in coding. And the professional services team that were taking that up, it wasn't going to be led necessarily by academics, even that teaching, that training. So you, you were going to sort of have a situation whereby you do a, a humanities degree in X, but you'd have separate classes in coding, which you could go to, especially set on for humanities students. That's a first step, right? It's not very interesting as you're not doing the sort of things you're talking about, um, Zoe, you know, around the fascinating ways we can use the digital in the humanities now. But it is a first step. And I think it comes from a recognition from students that it's just really weird to separate education from this digital world, which is our world now, it's also real. I mean, I even go really radical on this, and obviously not radical compared to proper futurists, but, you know, people say, oh, my kids don't have real friends, they only have these online friends. I mean, I just totally disagree with that. Online is where they're spending their time, it's where they're getting their dopamine, it's where they're uh, forming real bonds and of course you'll they'll also have to have some flesh and blood friends but to be now to be really radical it's not inconceivable people will marry without ever having met on the internet exchange gametes on the internet and this sort of thing sends shudders down lots of people's spines but i I really don't think we can rule that sort of thing out but even rowing, rowing back from there, we have to get more integrated with the digital world and education. And when it comes to older people, I, I don't know what we do about that. So you guys know much more than me, this whole thing about digital natives versus digital tourists and so on, which has been around for over a decade now. And we know, as you were saying actually earlier, Paul, some young people are really not good at some aspects of digital. They're fine at kind of communicating. They're not good on collaborative Google Docs or professional behavior in in Zoom meetings. So there's a very patchy here because some of the older people are good at that stuff, but completely out of touch with how young people are communicating and and what has a value in the digital space. So I think it's a massive opportunity, isn't it, for people like you to think about how you offer training to teachers and people like me who kind of want to learn, but still pretty slow. And it's an opportunity and an obligation to universities to think about how we bring younger people up to speed in the more necessary professional aspects of digital, which perhaps they're not getting through their social life and swimming through Discord platforms all the time and making and creating music and art. They're not getting 
and professional skills that they they also need. Yeah, I think it's a hard one because you've what you've got to describe is so you know you're describing the world we live in and technology is a, an integrated part of that, but it's still separated out. So if you're talking to students about the experience of coming to university, there's the analog experience, the the sort of the you know outside of the teaching, and then the teaching becoming more of a digital experience for them. So I think there's that blend between the two. But I think we're all struggling with that, and I think the 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 sort of the thought process of having a conversation a couple of weeks ago what you're actually going to start to have to sell in business and in uh, academia is this idea that uh, the the majority of learning and the majority of work is going to be done in isolation i think there was a wonderful point on on the podcast i was listening to with you and dave erasmus where you were talking about sitting in a lecture and, and, and writing something down feverishly and saying oh i must find out about that and then having to wait a week until you could sit down with the lecturer in a one-to-one and ask the questions that you had about that subject whereas dave was saying he can get immediate answers to that so almost uh, using the internet can can almost accelerate things sort of on an hourly daily minute by minute basis so the majority of learning is going to be done by individuals in isolation but what we need to do is we need to to still connect on a human level we need to find ways and means of doing that quite frankly at the moment aren't scary to people as well because the idea of coming to london in the current context and, and spending time there is is probably quite mm. frightening to them but the idea of of coming to um a, a space that you know, can be socially distanced, socially distanced and clean and safe and all that sort of stuff for periods of time during that academic year is palatable, I think, and I think is 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 a way forward. So we will be seeing organisations, long and the short of it, is we will be seeing organisations that say, like Google, you work from home now, but uh, three times a year, teams are going to come together, we're going to do the planning, we're going to do the strategy, we're going to do all of the deep work that we need to do together in a different way to a different timetable so there's covid and there's non-covid right so i mean do you think that stuff is is really going to endure because i think you know in 18 months time we'll, we'll have forgotten a lot about the feelings about this period whether we'll have moved to all these different patterns of working or not i don't know but i think on the sort of social point we won't be so worried about about that then well we will be back to normal well i would hope so However, you know, how long does that take? The example, I know we sort of I flippantly said we, we bonded over Arsenal. Now I'm being faced with a discussion with Arsenal as to whether I want to go back into a stadium this year or whether I want to wait till next year. In reality, I'm looking at both things and thinking they're the same thing. So I could go back into a stadium uh, in October or I could go into a stadium in August, but I don't necessarily know from this far out whether the experience is going to be vastly different or not. So I guess for you launching a university in September, next year can we be certain that we are moving towards a a sort of a different world moving back to a a world where we are safe and we can make those decisions and we can choose to be in those places or is this a sort of a a new reality that is going to face us for the next three or four years as this thing cycles out i don't know and i'm not sure that anyone has the answers to that just yet i mean my instinct here is that the particular aspect of the social distancing will recede quite rapidly once we are confident that there's herd immunity or we have a vaccine so for me it's separating out a little bit the um necessity or powerful trend towards so much being digital in terms of work and learning and then the other part of life which is going to be always be as far as long as we're flesh and blood human beings some real world social bonding around music sport eating it's interesting you picked up on things like strategy and so on for google so those are sort of for me a bit halfway in between i still 
think we haven't quite worked out whether we can do those things well online. They're certainly yeah, challenging at the moment. I mean, but for a university, you sort of need to want to make it a place where people, a, a physical place, where people just so much want to come that they're going to commute in from wherever they are to be there. But I think that's challenging. And this might be because, again, I'm now obviously middle-aged with a family. It's a big ask to make me move from my nice house and quiet and opportunity to cook and be with the kids to do a two-hour commute every day for, for those kinds of things. So different for younger people, of course, but how much different, I don't know. But I feel that's what the, the real estate has to do. It has to be somewhere where students will really, really want to go to do stuff they can't do online because the learning increasingly can and should be online because that's where it will stay. And back to these kind of tools and ways of working we're talking about, the only way you can learn that stuff is by doing it. So the teacher says, I want you all to submit a three-minute video via Loom on Monday morning, and you've got to work out how to do it. So we're not going to speed spoon feed you through that. We're going to ask you to, to go and learn it online and produce the video or work in a Google Doc. Uh, and that's interesting too, because of course, you know, traditionally you're supposed to spoon feed students all the way. And I did this a bit at UCL and BASC. I'd say, listen, I'm not going to teach you to make a better video than you guys can already do on your phones. So what we'll do is we'll really dial down the amount of points you get for that in the assessment. It might be at best 10% and it'll be very hard to get 10 out of 10 of that 10%. So everyone will get kind of between the six and a nine maybe, but I'm still going to expect you to do this. And some, some students grumble. They're like, how it's not fair because they're a filmmaker and they can make great videos and get three more marks than me. To which I replied, you know, some people are good at writing and some people aren't good at writing. And, and you're still going to get differences in grades as a, result, as a result of that. And we'll help the poorer people get better, but maybe they'll never be as good as the, as the gifted writers. We're kind of at a place with that with digital tech now in some ways with regard to assessment. We can help you a bit, but some people are just way ahead with this stuff already. Some students are way ahead and we should be encouraging that and saying, we want to hear your ideas via this new digital medium. We're largely going to be assessing the ideas because that's what we do as academics, assess their credibility, the research base to them and so on. But it's definitely going to be an element how well this is presented, just as it is with an essay or a standard presentation. Um, and so that's kind of plays into the digital assessment piece. And again, so it's learning online and setting digital assessments online. It's a great point because, as you said earlier, for me, I very much associate university with this incredible collective shared experience that even in the digital age needs to be quite visceral and physical in some ways and have that really strong association with place how that gets replicated how that's you know we try and find different ways of doing that at this time I think is is such an interesting challenge Um, and I love your point about folding in that teaching of of digital skills with with other disciplines I think that's a brilliant way to get students to learn and to to get them thinking about how they can apply digital practically in in what they're they're doing and what they're learning about yeah good and I mean I I just hope we get enough more senior people who can genuinely lead in that That, that's the challenge right because the senior people might have all the all the great academic skills and chops. And, and I, as I say, I still believe in that and want that. We need that. But they're going to really struggle in some ways to think about how that translates to the digital environment. On the basis that, you know, both Zoe and I have small children and they are going through school at the moment and they're having that sort of deep dive into all sorts of different things. Um, and it's fascinating to sort of sit and watch 
um, and not apply old world thinking to the, the the approach that they're taking at the moment. I mean, they'll, they'll <laughs> quite frankly, they have enough of old world thinking in the school that the schools that they're in, I'm sure. But they're you know they're going through and experiencing this, and and I'll have conversations uh, with my wife about you uh, Ethan going to university in six or seven years, and we both have very different views on what that might look like. So I think from an interdisciplinary point of view, really interested to think about how that reaches to students of our our kids ages and how they really start to think about this rather than thinking like they might be trained to oh you need maths if you want to become an accountant you need science if you want to become a scientist you know those that sort of thing this is really an area that completely fascinates me just to contrast with what we have at the moment we have a very linear siloed column-like conception of what education is that you do you know a little bit of economics, you learn about supply and demand. Then you learn uh, there's a difference between macro and microeconomics, that's level two. Then you might do something called labor economics and add in some mathematics, that's called um, econometrics. And you basically stack up knowledge in a very, uh, yeah, brick by brick in a very narrow way. Um, and at the end, you get something like a degree or an A level in economics. You're not really an economist because those people tend to be either academics or very high up in banks or something like that. And the reality is for, for most of us, and, in, and more than ever, I think, in the modern world, where connectivity and horizontality, making connections across different cultures, different disciplines, different sectors of business, brings a lot of value. It's that which brings the value. More and more where that need for ability to connect across sideways uh, it is there, we, we need to think of education in a new way that values that. And so just to give a couple of concrete examples, if you had a student, for example, at the moment in university who'd done, say, two years of history, and in their final year, they really thought they should do a machine learning course, even an introductory course, because um, that would give them more value going to work in this tech space. Maybe they even had a job offer, actually, which required that. At the moment, the system says you couldn't do a level one course in your final year of university because that's not respectable. You have to do a third level history course because that's what it is to advance in your learning. And you might just be tearing your hair out thinking, listen, I've done two years of history. I've done 240 credits. I'm really pretty good at history now. I guess I could do a very specialized module on Cromwell and the English Revolution or whatever. But actually for my development and for my career opportunities and simply for my sort of education in terms of making interesting connections across things, machine learning at level one might be much more value to me. So it'd be like, I need another node in my network to connect to what I've already got. And it's that network as a conception of what I'm learning, which is the value for me. I don't need another brick higher up on this column because the column's not actually going anywhere I, want, I need or want it to go. And we just don't have the exam system, the regulatory system, the institutional reaching out between departments to allow it to happen. And we really, we really need to break this now because, you know, the network is the dominant metaphor of our age for so many things for good reason. Social network, uh, Wikipedia networks, you guys will know a lot more about networks than me. This, the connectivity of the internet and, and also to some extent the kind of general big problems we face like migration and climate change and so on, they involve connecting all sorts of different dots in different areas. And unless we have a conception of education which maps onto that, and facilitates that and kind of rides with that and even even hopefully drives that in some way, we're not educating 
in a way which is helpful for this environment which our students are moving into. So you have to find a way to make the connections meaningful and worthwhile and then assess that that's being done actually. I guess that's the obligation of educators to say, okay, what's this connection? How's it working? Why have you done it? So that's where interdisciplinarity comes in, is thinking how we connect different disciplines academic disciplines to start with, but then any, any kind of connections across sectors, across cultures, whatever. And interdisciplinarity is inherently more disruptive because all these networks, you'll notice of networks, what's fascinating about them is they all have a commonality. You can see straight away that's a network. There are the nodes, there are the edges. They've also got all got an individuality. Ooh, this one's really clustered around here. Ooh, this one's really spread out and stringy. So they're fascinating mathematical objects. They have that beautiful quality of all being and able to be characterized in one way as networks, but all being a little bit different, a bit like people actually, <laughs> a bit like individuals, which is another nice metaphor for how education should be much more personalized. So I passionately believe we need education to move in this direction, to conceive of it as a network of knowledge. And that means we need interdisciplinarity, but I'm in, under no illusion as to how difficult conceptually and practically that will be to implement. And so is that the sort of the number one challenge for for next year for next september when you sort of walk in into the room is is creating that freedom of expression i guess for your students to to explore you know being yeah. being influenced by a by a sort of a, a you know a history that that impossible tanker to move and turn around that that sort of you know steeps all of our thought processes around education and what that looks like yeah i think um we want to well, we wanted to talk a lot about networks and, and the network of knowledge our students are creating and make that explicit to them sometimes as well as requiring them to evidence it. A much harder piece, much, much harder piece is to then push back on some conceptions of what, what you say about education and what you claim and evidence you're doing in education. And this is the kind of goes right up to the national regulatory level, which is all about these levels that, as I mentioned, you have to tack on more of a discipline each year that's what we value and that's what we tell students we're going to do. So that's a big challenge going on as well in the background. I and mean, we haven't even really started that, to be honest. Uh, it'd be very difficult to, to make inroads, but I think we, we need to do it. But in terms of the kind of the curriculum itself, um, what, what I've wanted to do, and I think what I've always wanted to do, I wrote a blog about this about, about eight years ago now, is, is create an environment where you allow for emergent outcomes that are very valuable. And that's a key word, emergence. You may have heard it in people talking about complex systems, right? You, you inherently cannot predict what the system is going to do, and you have to live with that. So you find ways to either just prod parts of the system to influence it slightly, or you stand right back from the system and say, I just don't know what's gonna happen, and therefore this is how I'm gonna act. And this brings in all sorts of interesting things about our attitude to uncertainty and to risk and, and so on. But that very notion that you would create an educational environment structure curriculum in which the outcomes are emergent is pretty much impossible in the modern age because you have to tell the students in advance exactly what they're going to get. And if you say you're going to get an emergent outcome, which is going to be your own network of knowledge, which is going to be individual to you and allow you to progress in exactly the way you want in the modern world, everyone just either rolls their eyes or just doesn't believe it. So there's a yeah. whole discussion around what we mean by emergence and there's a lot of fantastic work going on in this. I mean, this isn't bonkers stuff. Some of the greatest minds in the world are working in complex systems and emergent properties at the moment in, in economics and engineering and hardcore stuff. But it hasn't really hit education yet and education lists and the way we 
set up our exams, how we sell what we're doing and all that sort of thing. So I think we should make an attempt to do that. But it's going to be very challenging for everyone, for students to kind of get on board with that, for their parents to understand what we're doing, produce materials which, which meet regulatory requirements in that regard. But for me to do anything, anything less than that would be sort of dishonest and, sec- and second best. It's fascinating. The question I have then is, when you come to 2024, 25, that'd be the first graduation, graduating year, 24, how can you start to affect the business landscape and the world landscape that they are going to be emerging in? Because my one fear, having worked in a big organisation, for example, so there was a lot of chat in, in, in the podcast you did with Dave Erasmus around getting an education and moving into a career such as, uh, you know, working in a big four consultancy firm, a Deloitte or a KPMG or whatever it might be. My experience of those organisations is that the type of people that you might build who you release into the world in 2024 will struggle to get a foothold within that organisation because of the antibodies, because, you know, this, this, is, this, isn't, oh, this is an interesting life. So the question is, I guess, how do you prepare businesses and how do you build the partnerships now that mean that you have great pathways for those students to graduate and, and follow in 2024? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Here I'm relying very much on my colleagues. So the great thing about being a startup university is we have very different people in the organization from perhaps many universities. We do have some brilliant uh, entrepreneurs, track record of building tens of millions uh, pounds of companies. And we also have some very brilliant people from the consultancy sector and the charity sector. And they believe it's a very mixed picture out there. So Paul, you you know, shared some of your experience and I'm sure that's, a very large experience but these guys believe from their contacts there's also a hunger for new ways of seeing new ways of working and, and change so part of our whole mission is to build out also professional development closely related to ideas about interdisciplinarity complex systems uh, networks of knowledge and so on so we see that as a symbiosis going forward that we're going to be uh, learning from organizations about their needs and frustrations but also very much helping them think in new ways. And that might come down to the individual level. It might come down to, well, probably will in the end, come down to an enlightened boss or middle manager who wants to either upskill themselves or help younger people who are a bit frustrated with current ways of thinking. And and hopefully those guys will come to us. Uh, We're we're working on some packages already for that. So, I mean, I guess the shorter answer to your question is we hope that our graduates, believe our graduates will be slotting into those kinds of roles. So, it won't be a shock to organizations because they'll be working with us for three or four years by then. And we think there'll be enough slots by then with the disruption going on as it is for our graduates to populate. Now, it won't be everywhere. And there will be some organizations that will actually thrive by retrenching, right? Because some of the world is very conservative. But we just, we see enough action <laughs> and disruption to know that there's going to be millions, millions of jobs and opportunities in, in areas which are very fast moving and, are, and do need this type of graduate. Thank you, Carl. I've learned so much from talking to you this morning. And and what it's really got me thinking about is some of the uh, younger people on on my team who I manage, perhaps who've uh, just come from university recently or indeed have have just come from from school and uh, how I can best prepare them for a a really fast moving uh, world of of work and business that's really going to change very rapidly. Do you have any advice for me or any of our, our listeners who may be thinking, what can we as line managers 
do to really help young people learn and grow and, and prepare for this very innovative, much disrupted world that's still unfolding in front of us? Gosh, I'm really flattered that you'd even ask me, Zoe. I'd really like to hear your thoughts on that. Um, you know, I, I started by saying I wasn't a proper academic, but I am sort of quite academic in the sense that I'm an intellectual who loves universities and I, I love to learn from outside, but I don't, I've never achieved in the outside world. And I think you have to look at the, the bottom line I've achieved within universities. So I'm humbled, as the Americans say, that you ask me. I, I think you should take whatever I say here with a big pinch of salt and maybe as some kind of just an inspiration, but maybe not something actionable. I think, I think concepts are really important here. How you conceive of who you are and what you've done and what you've achieved and want to achieve is, is really important. So I do go back to this idea of your network of knowledge in your own mind. What is it about you that you know that you can really bring to work and really helps you add value to the organization? And can you as a boss think about that in your employees? And then, of course, the, the crucial next step is having kind of identified that inner network of knowledge, those nodes where you know stuff, and then the edges where you perhaps connect those, that stuff together, or breaks where you don't have connections. The next step is, how can I make this an even better network, more resilient, more interesting in its shape, better connections or, or bigger nodes? And then what the learning is required to, to do that? Because one thing seems for sure that the best organizations are going to be full of fantastic learners right from the top to the bottom so having identified that network of knowledge what is the learning you need to improve on bits of it and and some of that might be deep dive into the dis, into more you know specialist stuff which is like if you like the nodes making those nodes fatter and fatter and some of it might be actually making some connections between things you've never thought of connecting before uh, and that's something we don't think about so much i think in education this this connecting different things so can we set up education programs in working with our own people get them to identify connections they'd like to make and then help them make those connections so it's just slightly off the top of the head ideas but related to things that i think about in my world with regard to the curriculum i think it's fascinating and i'm really 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 looking forward to following the next year of building and seeing what you what what actually comes to life and gets delivered in in september of next year it's really really exciting so thank you for listening through to the end of episode four of season two. It was a long one, but I hope you found it fascinating in the way that we did. We'll be back next week talking to Dharma Satyanathan of Bethnal Green Ventures. As usual, please send us your feedback. We'd love to hear about anything that you feel you will do differently after hearing from any of our speakers from the series. You can share your plans, ideas or questions with us on Twitter, where it starts at the top one. And you can email us at startsatthetoppodcast at gmail.com. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you can. And thank you to all of our listeners and we'll speak to you soon.